So how are you doing on your uh, New Year's resolutions? I mean, come on, it's been five weeks, right? I mean, where you at? You, you saving that extra $5 every day? You getting, getting that five hours more a week in sleep? Are you reading your Bible five minutes more a day? Have you lost those five pounds that you were hoping to lose? Well, one of the reasons that the white weight might be coming off a little slower is because you might be crunching the numbers a little too much. Ashley Greenblatt is a certified personal trainer, and she gives four tips for having a better relationship with your bathroom scale. All right, here's, here's the first one. Use the scale once a week. Undally, it seems to be a negative thing for your mental energy to weigh yourself every day. One of you gave me that advice recently. I've tried to take it. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, don't weigh yourself every day, Undali. It's probably not good for your mind. It's definitely not good for you to weigh every night after you have that obligatory late night piece of seven-layer caramel cake. Don't weigh after the cake. That, that'll never go good. Number two, get in a rhythm. Use the same scale at about the same time of the week and try to wear something that's pretty similar every single time. If you live in Fairbanks, Alaska, and you're going to see your mom in Sarasota, Florida for Valentine's Day, and you get to her house, and you get on her scales, and you have magically lost five pounds, it is not because you just flew in the air and they just disappeared, all right? It's probably because you're not wearing that double flannel Sherpa line parka that you wear all the time in Fairbanks because it's a little cold up there. So just get in a rhythm and, and stick with it. Number three, be aware of misleading measurements. Not every set of scales has been calibrated the same. That's why in my house I have four sets of scales. I use all of them, and I pick the lowest number of the four. That's just a, a good way to handle it, a good, good way for me to roll. Number four, substitute the scale. This is what Ashley writes. Body measurements and clothing also work well in assessing weight goals. Your clothes don't lie. Bless. That's a true statement, right? If your jeans feel snug or difficult to button, it's safe to assume you've gained weight. Good math there. If you put on a few extra pounds, do not discard these items. Rather, use your pants as a motivator to return to a weight at which they fit comfortably. That's exactly why I still have my parachute pants from eighth grade. Because one day, they are going to fit again. And I'm going to wear them on Sunday morning. Regardless of what kind of scales we are using or what we're wearing when we get on the scale, the purpose of the scale is to help us know where we stand. When we stand on that scale, we either know that we either need to lose some weight or, or we have done okay. Or we might get on that scale and we might say, hey, you know what, I am, I'm being found wanting here. <laughs> this scale is showing me I am being found wanting. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means there's a, a lack of something. And sometimes when we get on the scale, we realize that the lack of something is that there's a, a lack of healthy eating in our lives, or there's a, a lack of healthy exercise in our life, or there's a lack of self-control when it comes to the obligatory late-night seven-layer caramel cake. Maybe that's just my problem. I don't know. But, but we have these things where we're founding, found wanting. We're, we're found lacking. There's, there's something that we need. And, you know, issues with our physical weight can cause a, a problem with our health at times. It can cause a, a problem with our mind sometimes. But, but what about our spiritual health? 
What does it mean to stand on some spiritual scales? What does it mean to be lacking something spiritually? What does it mean to be found wanting spiritually? And who cares? Why does it matter? Why does it matter today that, that we should be more concerned with our spiritual weight than our physical weight? Why is it important? Well, let's see if we can find out. Psalm 1, verse 5. The psalmist writes this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Well, who are the wicked and why will they not be standing? Well, the wicked are the ungodly, meaning they are the opposite of the godly. Well, how do you know what the opposite of godly is? Well, Psalmist has already told us back in his other sentences before this. Listen, beginning back with Psalm 1-1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So blessed and happy and fortunate and satisfied and content is the person that delights in God and delights in the truth of God, truth that God by his design has purpose for us to see in creation and discover in the Bible. In 1826, Reginald Heber put it this way in one of our most beloved hymns, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. A godly person loves to and longs to praise with creation, praise the Lord. They long for it. The wicked and the ungodly, they do not long for nor love to praise the Lord. 2005, in one of our newer hymns, Keith Getty and Stuart Townend put it this way, I will stand on every promise of your word, words of power, strong to save, that will never pass away. The godly love to believe in and delight in the truth of God's word. Truth that will not pass away because God is the only God who was and is and is to come. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is infinite. He has no beginning and no end. He is the only God who is holy, holy, holy. He is the only God who is other, other, other. There is none like him. But the wicked, they do not love to nor long to delight in God and delight in God's word. The wicked, the ungodly are without God. And that's an important distinction to remember because sometimes when we hear the word wicked, we immediately start thinking of, of terrorists and, and sex traffickers and folks like that. And clearly those folks are wicked and ungodly. But we have to be careful not to always be listening to the Bible for other people, for someone else. 
It is not outside the scope of reality that there are wicked, ungodly people even in the church. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, there's a devil in every church. Bless. All right, look, don't let that be on your resume here, really, okay? Let's just, yeah, run away from that one, okay? More mild way, he said this. What if you should be a black sheep in the midst of the flock? The idea is simply this. Be sure that when you are listening to the Bible, wherever you are listening to the Bible, when you're reading the Bible, whatever interaction you have with the Bible, be interacting with the Bible for you, first and most. Don't primarily be listening for some verse that you can use against a terrorist or a trafficker or a politician or someone else in your life. Be listening for God's word for your own heart. Let God's truth capture you. Apostle Paul was writing to his friend Titus. Titus was one of the church leaders at the Greek island of Crete. And he, he wanted Titus to remind the other folks in the church of something really important. And what was that one thing? This is what he wrote. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. If you are a Christian today, you once were not a Christian. Maybe you were six when you got saved. Maybe you were 16 when you got saved. Maybe you were 46 when you got saved. But if you're a Christian now, there was a time that you were not a Christian. So in some way, some shape, some form, according to how the Bible reads, there was a time that you were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved to lust and swirled up with evil intentions and selfish and hateful toward other people. Now, again, some of us go, eh, nah, five years old, I wouldn't like that. Have you met some five-year-olds? All right. This, this is not outside the realm of that, okay? Sometimes I think we are, we are tempted to say, oh, we're always innocent, but we're not. We're not. And so before Christ, these things are in some way part of who we are, even if it's just our heart and our mind. But then the kindness of God showed up. And God saved you. And that changed the whole story. Melissa Kruger is a wife and mom. She lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. She said this, What a privilege that my Savior saved me and that I get to spend my life telling people how good he is. What propels me is his goodness. He's so good and he rescued me and I have no idea why. He plucked me out and he saved me and I just want to tell other people they can be saved too and that the word is true. And she says this, I banked on that at 14, but I believe it now. And I look back and I say, yes, Psalm 1 is true. Blessed is the man or the woman who delights in the law of the Lord. And she says this, God's ways are better. They are not always easier but they are always better. They're always better. That's how the godly speak. That's how the non-wicked live. 
But the ungodly, the wicked, they, they don't live that way. No, they do not speak that way. Their life is not marked with that. And because they do not speak that way, because their life is not like that, the psalmist says they will not stand in judgment. Now, does that mean they're going to miss the thing? Does that mean all the, the wicked people, they get a pass and they don't, they don't have to stand in front of God and, and be judged? No, that's not what it means at all. What it means is when they stand in judgment, they will not be able to stand. They will be shrinking back, shrinking away, shrinking down in fear and horror and shame. They will be trembling at how much they have dishonored the holy God and how much they blew off the message of salvation. They will not be able to stand. They will be found wanting. They won't be able to stand because they won't have anything to stand on. When they climb on the eternal scales of justice, they will discover that they lack what is needed. They don't have what it takes to be right with God, to enter into eternity. Make no mistake, everybody will enter into eternity, but not everybody will enter in with joy. So let me just graciously press you to ask your heart a question. If today were your day to stand before God, could you stand? Could you stand? Do you have what it takes to be right with God? Do you have true saving faith in Jesus? Or are you found wanting? We see this wanting language at another point in history. About 2,500 years ago, there was a king named Belshazzar. You may pronounce his name differently. I'll probably pronounce his name 20 different ways as I tell this story. Probably should just call him King B. Not to be confused with Jay-Z, who's married to Queen B. Like I did all that math right there. <clears throat> Off the top of my head. So Belshazzar was having a party. And he'd invited a, a bunch of rich people to come to the party. And, and they were heavily drinking and and things moved in a weird direction where they started worshiping some of their little g-gods. They were worshiping their gods of gold, gods of silver, gods of bronze and iron and wood and stone. So they were worshiping these gods. And as they were worshiping, as they were drinking wine, suddenly Belshazzar saw some human fingers appear out of nowhere on the other side of the room on the wall. Not like a human body, but just some human fingers. And he saw those fingers begin to write something on the wall. And this is how the Bible describes the next moment, Daniel 5, verse 6. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Yeah, fair enough. Pretty sure that's what we would have done too if we just saw some fingers writing on the wall across the room. But this wasn't some kind of drunken stupor. He wasn't wearing wine goggles, and, and all of this is just his imagination. No, because when they sobered up a little bit, the words were still on the wall. So he knew something was up, and, and he was afraid. So he called his magicians and his fortune tellers and his psychics, and they all came in, and he said, look, I need you to translate whatever this stuff is that's on the wall. There's this inscription. Help, help me figure it out. But they couldn't. They tried. They said, King, we, 
we don't know what any of this means. And that made him panic. That frightened him. So the queen came in and saw everything that was going on. She said, you know, there's this guy in the kingdom. His name is Daniel. I think he's kind of good at that stuff. You ought to call him over. So the king did. He had Daniel come over, and, and this is what the king said after Daniel got there. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Big deal. But being the super bad, cool dude that Daniel was, this is how he responded. Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Keep your stuff. I don't want it, don't need it. But I'll let you know what the law says. And so Daniel proceeds to, to tell the king what's on the wall, but, but he's got a little bit of a prelude to it. And this is what he says. Listen to his announcement to the king. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Listen to this. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. That's some power. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever read anything out of the Bible? Have you ever heard something read or taught from the Bible? Do you know anything about the God of the Bible? If so, are you ignoring what you have read or seen or heard? Are you on purpose with arrogance or, or maybe casually putting your schedule and your life and your opinions, set, setting them up as, as more important than the truth that you know about God? If so, perhaps today is the day for you to humble your heart, to quit ignoring God's truth, and to come to Jesus. Perhaps today is your day. So how was Belshazzar exalting and praising himself? Listen, Daniel 5, 23. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. 
And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. And then Daniel said this, then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. So here's a man that was given life and breath, talent, ability, skills, authority, and he was using all of it to glorify himself. And rather than allow him to be snuffed out by sickness or an invading army, God reached out to the king in mercy and sent him a message. Has God ever sent you a message? You ever got a message from God? Maybe you got one this week, maybe one last week. Maybe you got it when you were a child or a teenager. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I got a message from God. I've never seen any fingers writing on a wall anywhere, so I guess not. Here's just one message that God has given that I'm fairly certain almost everyone listening to me knows. But, but in case you don't, you're getting ready to hear it. And so now, after you hear this message, you will need to do something with this message from God. Jesus said what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever would believe in him and trust in him and rely on him and cling to him, would not perish or come to destruction, but have eternal, everlasting life. What have you done with that message? That, that, that message has come your way. That, that message has just now at least come into your ears. And my guess is a lot more messages have come from God to us. What are you doing with the messages of God? Has God plucked you up? Has God saved you? Are you living for him? Or are the messages of God just going in one ear and out the other? There were four sets of letters inscribed on the wall by the mysterious fingers And Daniel began to translate what they meant. And here's the first part. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. He could not stand before God. He did not have what it takes to be right with God. He was found wanting. Many years before King B, there was a very wealthy, wealthy man named Job. And Job, for all of his wealth, he never began to worship his wealth. He never began to worship the gods of gold and silver and wood and iron and bronze and stone. No, he only had one God. Yahweh was his God and his only God. And in a matter of of hours almost, Job lost all he had, all his wealth, all of his possessions, even all of his children. And outside of a a few times in life where he was discouraged and down, every time that Job got weighed, 
he was not found wanting. The guy never steered to the left or the right. His praise, his delight, his worship never changed. He never quit recognizing the most high God. When he lost everything, he never quit recognizing the most high God. When everything fell apart, he never quit recognizing the most high God. When tragedy, ultimate and hard and difficult, was thrust upon his family through the death of his own children, he never quit recognizing the most high God. When he stepped on the scales, he was not found wanting. Why? Because Job had discovered that the best of the best of the best for his soul was to delight in the Lord. The best for his soul was to love and enjoy the Most High God. Charles Spurgeon said this, is it this way with you? Can you say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you submit to his will without murmuring? Can you still say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him? Remember, if your religion will not stand in adversity, it will not give comfort in the storm. You would be better without it. For with it, adversity deceives you. Without it, you might discover your true condition and seek the Lord as a penitent sinner. If a little adversity breaks you, what will happen when all God's storms are let loose on your soul? The picture of being found wanting is is a person who, who stands before God and the judgment of eternity falls down upon them and they can't handle it because they could never handle any adversity because they never recognized the Most High God. The wicked, the ungodly, they will not be able to stand up in that day. They will have nothing to stand on. They will be found wanting. A bit of this Old Testament language here would describe something like this. They will not be acquitted. We know that word from this week, right? Been pretty popular in our nation and and around the world, really. But please listen to the, the sober truth of the gospel. That if you're the president, or you're a pastor, or you're a parent, or you're a spouse, or you're whoever else you are in life, no matter when and how and who you get acquitted here on this earth without Christ, God will not acquit you. That is the harsh, gracious, merciful, loving truth of the gospel. That we do not have to stay dead in our sins. We do not have to keep being found wanting. We can come to Christ and live. There's one more thought here that the psalmist gives. In verse 5, he says, Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. In a sense, all roads do lead to heaven. It's just they don't lead inside. All roads do lead to a person standing before 
God. But all people are not ushered into God's kingdom. Jesus taught it this way one day. He said there's going to be a separation, and there'll just be two groups. The separation will be those who will go away and, and enter into the joy of their salvation, and then those who will enter into eternal, everlasting darkness. There are no other groups. Those are the only ways that Jesus says the world will be separated. The psalmist is describing this truth. You can be a decent person and do decent things in this life and even be a member of a decent church, but without Christ, you will not be in the congregation of heaven. These are strong words from the psalmist, but, but is there any good news? <laughs> is, there any, is there any hope in the middle of any of this? Any, any hope in the middle of all this wicked, ungodly, dark, separating language? Well, yeah, there is. Comes in a, in a different, different route, though. One of the other psalmists is known as Asaph, and, and he wrote Psalm 73. Let me read just the beginning of that. See if you can make any connection in your personal life or what you've thought about this week or what you've posted on social media with what Asaph says. Psalm 73. My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Not like fat, fat, but like they got everything they want. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Begs the question, why does it seem like the wicked, ungodly people have all the fun? Why is it that, that those terrorists and those, those sex traffickers, they seem like they always get to do whatever they want to do with no repercussions? Why does it seem like so many evil people in the world, they always get to stand around and do whatever they want to do, and, and they're always acquitted of everything they do, and they, they never seem to be held accountable, and when they get on the scales of justice, it seems like it has nothing to do with them. Well, the key word there is seems. It does seem that way. Why is it that Asaph almost stumbled? Why did he almost lose his footing? It's because he had the wrong focus. Listen to what he goes on and writes. Psalm 73, beginning verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God then I perceive their end. Now, I think most of us hear that and we go, oh, yeah, we have a beautiful sanctuary. That's what Asaph did. You know, he just went down before church started on Sunday morning. He sat in the pew and just the stained glass light just warmed him with God's presence. Or he came on some special day and, and, and the same thing happened. That's, that's really not the scene here. See, if Asaph had walked into the sanctuary, what would he have probably seen? He probably would have seen a lot of blood and a lot of dead animals and a lot of sacrifice. So it wouldn't have been nice stained glass and pretty pews where you can just sit and be all lovey with God. No, it would have been a violent scene. But that scene would have also immediately stirred him to remember something. And that's this. When he walked in and looked around and he saw how serious God was about sin, how serious God still is about sin, 
he would say, you know what? I know who has the last scales. I know who has the last scales. I think sometimes we forget the power of the cross because we're convinced that whatever power, even if it's just the update of the news, has more power than God. Tony Reinke put it this way, Asaph almost lost his footing because he wanted something more than he wanted God. He he wanted some sense of justice or he wanted his life to be different. He he wanted everything to look different and sound different and and feel different. And, And because of that, he started not wanting God enough. He started wanting other things. When we look at the evil and the wicked and the sinful things happening in our world and our community, when we look at the the evil and the the sinful and the wicked things happening even in our own lives and our own families, our own homes, our own workplaces, our own schools, we have to be careful about how we respond. See, we can't love sin. We, We generally speaking, we know that we can't love sin. But we also can't love to be angry. We can't love to be arrogant. We can't love to be anxious. We can't love to be apathetic. We can't love being afraid. We can't love being worried. We can't love being stressed. We can't love being confused of how it seems like the ungodly and the wicked seem to get away with everything. We, we can't love those things. Those things may happen, but we can't love those things. They can't be who we are. As a friend of mine told me, walking across campus in seminary, he said, you know, whatever kind of mood or attitude you're in, you're going to have to decide if that's going to become an idol. Are you going to start worshiping your stress? Are you going to start worshiping your anger? I'm going to tell you this. (laughs) You scroll through some people's social media posts, they are worshiping their anger. Worshiping it. Idolizing it. I want to be angrier, God, but I don't want to be holier. I don't want to be more loving towards you. And we're all tempted to move in that direction. So Asaph almost lost his footing because he was loving the wrong thing. But but then he stepped into the sanctuary. He, He saw how serious God is about sin. And he went, oh, oh yeah, that's right. God's got the last scales. I can trust him. My faith is real. So what is the something we need to long more for? This is what Asaph said. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That's, that's who I run to. That's what he's saying. You know, I have discovered that being near God is, is for my good. When I get sick, being near God is my good. When I get angry, being near God is my good. When I get stressed, being near God is my good. When I get depressed, being near God is my good. To be near God is is where I need to be. I need to run to him. He needs to be my hope and my salvation. But can I just confess to us, most of us, we run to other things. We just do, we run to other things. Tim Keller said this, live for beauty but beauty fades. Live for money, but money fades. Live for success, but success fades. 
If you don't have God, you really don't have anything because everything is just slipping away from you. Therefore, it may be shaky to believe in God, but it's more slippery not to. Listen, here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the beauty of the cross. Here's the beauty of of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. Here's the beauty of saying, peace, be still. Here's the beauty of of Jesus rising from the dead. Here's the, the beauty of Jesus ascending into heaven. Here's the beauty that everything that Jesus has ever done gives us every reason to believe that he is coming again. Here's the beauty of all of that. So you don't have to slip on the scales of eternity. You don't have to be found wanting. No, because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, because of how he is calling you today, you can come to Jesus and live. You don't have to be found wanting. You can come to Jesus and live. See, that's the good news. The real news is you can be found wanting. But you can also stand on that day. And from the bottom of your soul, remember and realize that you were wanted and that you were chosen, not forsaken that you were rescued and redeemed. That in that moment, God prevailed and he did not fail. And Jesus will say, enter into the joy of your salvation. That's where we want to stand.